Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a science-led biopharmaceutical company dedicated to partnering with leading scientific companies, organizations, and the community to improve outcomes for advanced cancer patients. More at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about cardio-oncology with Dr. Lauren Baldessare. Dr. Baldessare is the director of the Smilo Cancer Hospital Cardio-Oncology Program, and Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale School of Medicine and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo. Cardio-oncology, is that cancer of the heart? Well, um, so the field of cardio-oncology is a relatively new field. Um, it first started um, um, to address the concerns of some uh, potentially harmful effects of some cancer chemotherapy and other therapeutics um, as far as effects that they may have on the heart in some patients. Um, originally, the field was started um, specifically with concern for some of the agents used in breast cancer, mm -hmm. and that's how the field initially uh, started to grow. Um, but now it actually encompasses um, a large variety of cancer patients looking at not only uh, side effects that um, patients may have from some of the therapeutics they receive to treat their cancer, but also um, we help to treat patients who have complex cardiac disease um, alongside with their concomitant cancer as well. Mm -hmm. How did you become interested in this particular area of cardiology? Well, it's interesting. I always had an interest in prevention, actually, um, within cardiology, as well as cardiac imaging. Um, and from my perspective, um, these two interests are actually um, very well related to cardio-oncology, um, as the ideal approach for cardio-oncology is a preventative one, where we hope to be able to risk stratify patients and also to help with diagnosing any potential problems early on. And then and help with that management of those problems in order to get the patients through the care of their cancer. Hmm. But most patients, I imagine, who get to you, excluding these ones who have prior cardiac history and we need you to help them manage them, are patients in whom there's already been a problem, right? Isn't that why they are referred to you in the first place? Um, absolutely. Sometimes that is the case. Um, but we also do have a preventative approach with a fair amount of patients, um, specifically with some of the breast cancer patients where we actually see them early on um, to help with risk stratification as far as their cardiovascular risks, um, help to decide any sort of extra imaging they may need or any medications that may be helpful at the um, beginning of the treatment for their cancer rather than waiting to see if there's a problem. Hmm. So do you screen all breast cancer patients about to get chemotherapy? At this time, we don't screen all patients. Um, 
We tend to screen those who have at least one or more cardiovascular risk factor, like high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, uh, family history of cardiac disease, um, but also really any patient who wants to discuss um, and get more information about the potential side effects of their therapy, um, they're more than welcome to be seen by one of us and have, have those discussions prior to beginning the treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's up to the primary treating oncologist in general to suggest that maybe they should see you. Is that right? It's primarily up to the uh, general oncologist, um, but patients also um, sometimes come way. to us on their own. Right. Yes. What kind of preventative strategies are available? Um, so one of the big approaches we have um, with these patients is some advanced cardiac imaging to um, help get more information either at the beginning of their treatment or throughout and sometimes afterwards. And these could be techniques um, such as echocardiography, which is ultrasound of the heart, where we apply some advanced um, imaging techniques where we try to detect problems early on if they may occur um, before they become clinically apparent. Um, other techniques that we use would be something called cardiac um, MRI, and that is um, another way to look at the structure and function of the heart and to get some additional um, information about uh, potentially early changes before we would see any real clinical um, harmful effects. So if uh, you start to detect some changes, are there options besides changing the drugs or reducing the dose? Is there anything that one can administer prophylactically, or is it really just a question of early detection? Yes. If we see any concern early on, we will um, put the patient on medications uh, to ideally prevent um, any further um, effects and to help strengthen the heart muscle um, moving forward. You know, our goal really in the in the end is to help support the patient so that they can uh, receive the treatment that they need for their cancer and to carry them through this therapy and then also to help monitor and take care of them afterwards. Although sometimes we do have a scenario where if there is um, a lot of concern, we will recommend a change in the treatment of their cancer, such as stopping one uh, drug and, and starting another instead, or potentially reducing the dose. But to be honest, that is relatively um, uncommon. We try to not do that unless it's absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. So I, I know that there's a classic uh, class of drugs, uh, which we know to potentially uh, influence heart function if you get too much of them, these so drugs that we call anthracyclines and, and related drugs. But what if, how do we find out about other drugs that we, we don't know? There's so many new drugs coming out nowadays. Um, how are they vetted for potential cardiac toxicity? Is it all animal models? Uh, you know, if somebody gets heart failure when they're on a clinical trial, how do we follow up on that? How, do, how does one sort that out? Well, that's a great question. It actually is um, a challenge in the field <laughs> because, as you mentioned, there are 
a lot of different agents used to treat a variety of cancers. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, there are a few that are sort of top of the list that we are, um, you know, concerned about, such as the, the anthracycline group. Um, but there are many, many other therapeutics that can, you know, potentially cause um, harmful effects on the heart. And um, it's really our job to know, you know, what those are um, and to be, you know, aware of those effects and um, be able to recognize them if they do pop up. There aren't, um, unlike the breast cancer patients, there aren't a lot of other um, strict guidelines as far as monitoring these patients um, with, you know, for example, serial imaging with echocardiography as we do in the breast cancer patients. Those guidelines are pretty clear for us. Um, but with the other agents, uh, we really have to really manage the patient on a on a case-by-case -case basis as far as um, deciding what type of monitoring to do for them. Hmm. And in the breast cancer, why why is there so much success there? Is it because so many patients are treated uh, in order to prevent recurrence in the future so that a lot of people have gotten these drugs and are not expected to relapse? Is is that just why people are thinking about that? Is it, or is it, is it the breast cancer advocacy population, which is so active? I, from my perspective, I think the main reason is just that we have more data in those patients. Mm -hmm. um, we've been using those agents for longer. Um, the data about... Um, the 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 cardiac effects of the anthracycline based therapy, um, you know, dates back to the late 70s or early 80s, actually, where that was um, discovered here at Yale, where they used nuclear imaging to mm. um, detect these early changes, and that was really how the field began. So I just think um, we have more data in that patient population, um, and therefore that data is able to shape guidelines, um, and certainly. It um, you know has has actually made a lot of sense as that data has come out. We've seen that um, as breast cancer treatment has has progressed, um, the patient survival from breast cancer is significantly improved compared to what it was um, decades prior. Sure. And these patients are living a lot longer, which is great. Um, but actually, what the data has shown us is that. After they survive their breast cancer, their risk of cardiovascular disease is significantly increased um, compared to those who have not been treated for breast cancer. So we have that long-term data that's helping to shape those guidelines for us. And is that risk, um, is there a finite time period after the chemotherapy where the risk is no longer increased? Or is it something that just increases with time as long as the patient survives? Um, it is. Uh, these are effects that we can see both in the short term and in the long term, actually. So that's why we recommend um, the monitoring early on, uh, you know, baseline um, assessment before treatment, uh, assessment during treatment, and assessment after. And usually for the breast cancer population, we'll see them if everything went smoothly, there was no cardiac issues during their therapy and um, we'll see them after completion at about six months, then another six months, and then we'll start to um, space it out to about follow-up every year, and sometimes eventually every two years if there really aren't any concerns. Um, but we don't know 
that there is really a time point where that risk is actually gone. So what we recommend is that all survivors of cancer um, have regular follow-up with either a survivorship clinic or uh, potentially with, with cardiology, ideally cardio-oncology, uh, long-term, and that you check in at least, you know, ideally once a year um, so we can assess how things are going and potentially get an imaging study. Um, that's our recommendation right now. So annual imaging studies, even the absence of symptoms. Correct. Wow. That's a lot. And mm-hmm. that could be a lot of patients for you guys, right? I mean, if you saw all these breast cancer patients in Connecticut, right. uh, you're going to have a pretty big clinic. Right. Yeah. Right. It's interesting. It's also one of those things where, um, you know, be careful what you wish for because as cardiologists, I imagine you, outside of prevention, you also like to do some treatment, but you certainly don't wish any badness <laughs> for the patients. But, you know, if it's all prevention, you know, that would limit your scope of practice a little bit. Correct. I mean, we like to have a preventative approach, um, but of course, um, you know, even with prevention, we're still going to have patients that that have, um, you know, effects of these therapies. It's just inevitable. Right. Yeah. I know some of these drugs are also used in pediatric cancers for which there are are many cures, for example, some of the pediatric leukemias. And um, when these kids age into adults, is there a role for them to be monitored by cardio-oncology, or is there a pediatric practice of, of cardio-oncology? Um, so there is absolutely a role. And um, often these patients uh, are ideally would be plugged into a survivorship clinic um, where they tend to do um, the amount of, of screening that's necessary for them, with, which often does um, include some... Um, cardiac screening, usually with echocardiography um, that is spaced out uh, more like every two to five years, um, depending upon what their exposure was to to um, the agents. Um, and what usually we do in that case is then the survivorship clinic um, will then send the patient to see us if um, there's any concern of symptoms or if there's any abnormality in any of their screening tests, such as the echo. Um, but any patient that is not being seen in a survivorship clinic is, of course, welcome to come and see us directly for assessment as well. Great. Well, I'd like to follow up on that a little bit after our break. But right now, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about cardio-oncology with Dr. Lauren Baldessade. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. For lung cancer patients, clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Lauren Baldessari. We've been discussing cardio-oncology. Lauren, just before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, kids treated for leukemia and other diseases 
uh, with some of these cardiotoxic, potentially cardiotoxic drugs who are likely to be long-term survivors. Uh, I'm wondering, um, does it matter what age you are as a kid when you get these drugs? Is a very you know, growing heart in a certain age more susceptible, less susceptible? I know kids sometimes have better regenerative powers in their organs than adults, but I don't know how it is in the heart. Or do we know? I don't think we know um, the exact answer to that question, um, but we do um, have uh, slightly different recommendations based on um, the age and the uh, the amount of um, the age at the time the treatment was administered, as well as the amount of the treatment, uh, and that um, will dictate for us um, how often we will be screening. Um, be screening those patients if they were very early at exposure with a lot of exposure that was not just only chemotherapy but radiation that could potentially put them at a higher risk and um, require some more uh, frequent monitoring than those who were exposed potentially at a at a later age with less exposure. Hmm. And I, I seem to remember from earlier in my career that there was a, a big concern, particularly with lymphoma patients who had gotten chest irradiation and Hodgkin's disease, for example, as well as breast cancer, that not only were people having some risk for heart failure, but actually they were developing coronary disease. Is, is that still a problem? Yes, that's still um, a concern, and we do um, do regular screening for symptoms, um, and in some patients we do some extra cardiac imaging, not only to look at the function, like with echocardiography, um, but actually sometimes we do look directly at the coronary arteries, and um, often what we do in that case is something that's called a coronary CT angiogram, <laughs> um, and that looks directly at, at the coronary arteries to screen for that type of coronary disease that, that can sometimes be seen in these patients, which is often um, a more kind of proximal uh, coronary disease, a little bit different than what you would see in sort of regular um, atherosclerosis that, that we see in older patients that develops over time. Proximal would mean sort of like closer to the origin of the arteries, Correct. is that what you mean? Uh -huh. yes. And it's not caused by cholesterol plaques? Right. The cause is different. The cause is thought to be more from damage. Um, the damage, right, from the radiation. Oh, fascinating. Wow. Well, I, hopefully the radiation oncologists are also, I'm, I'm sure, paying close attention to this. I know some of the newer techniques are so specific in terms of where they're aiming their beams. Yes, absolutely. There's been newer techniques that limit um, as much as possible the direct exposure um, to to the coronary arteries and also um, to the valves, which is another concern um, hmm. with radiation exposure to cause some thickening of the valves, which could eventually over time lead to some um, valve disease that either causes a, a leaky valve or, or a tight valve. Wow. Lots to worry about. You think you're done with cancer, right? <laughs> you mentioned cardiac MRIs a few times, and, and this is something that's it's pretty new to me. And you know, what I think of is patients are always complaining when they go for an MRI that they're supposed to lay absolutely still for so long. But the heart's beating. How do you take an MRI of a beating heart? Sure. Um, so the way that that works is a, a couple different ways, um, because as you mentioned, we're trying to take a, a picture of something that is constantly moving. Um, what we use are um, we use two techniques. One is we use a 
EKG, um, and that EKG um, lets us do what's called EKG gating so that we can capture the image at certain parts of the cardiac cycle when the heart is more still. So that helps us to, to image that, that moving object, the heart. And then we also um, will do breath holds um, or gate it to the, the respiratory breathing in order to account for the, the motion that can be caused with breathing as well. And by doing those two things, we actually get um, some very nice clear images of the heart that look at not only the overall structure and function, but also can look a little bit closer at the cardiac muscle itself to pick up more subtle changes like inflammation or fibrosis or scar that could be there. Wow, it's fascinating. I, I probably need to spend some time with you. I don't know if it was you that I was chatting with or, or one of your colleagues uh, last week in clinic uh, about how, you know, I, in my old career, we used to not infrequently do a lot of biopsies of heart muscle, or um, have you guys do that, when we were considering whether there was you know, damage related to chemotherapy, but it seems that that's not done very much, at least not in your practice. Um, that is not done routinely um, uh, much anymore um, because we do have such great imaging techniques to usually give us that information that we need. Um, we'll reserve that for very kind of more difficult or extreme cases um, when we're thinking about effects of um, of uh, agents from breast cancer. Um, there are some newer agents um, where there um, is concern for um, a more acute inflammatory process um, with some of the new immunotherapy agents. Um, and in that case, a biopsy actually um, often is indicated in that um, more acute setting. Um, we do still utilize that, that procedure, actually. And why is that? So that's because um, with some of these immunotherapy agents, which actually are really revolutionizing cancer right now, many, many different cancers um, having increased um, response rate and, and survival in patients. Um, what these agents do is they actually utilize uh, the patient's own immune system to help fight the, the cancer and help fight the tumor, um, which can work very well. But it does this in a manner that sort of um, unleashes or augments uh, that immune system. And some of the side effects of this are that um, you can have an exaggerated inflammatory response in multiple different organs of, of the body. Um, one of those organs is the heart. It's a less common organ to be affected than, say, um, the colon or the, the lung, which can be affected more frequently. But it still can happen. And, and when it happens, um, it can be pretty significant. Um, and so in that case, if we have concern for inflammation of the heart, um, which is called myocarditis, or inflammation of lining of the heart, which is called pericarditis, in those circumstances, we really need to get the information um, pretty quickly and make some decisions about what to do for that patient. And in that case, a, a biopsy actually gives us that information that we need, as well as some advanced imaging, usually with cardiac MRI and with echocardiography. Mm -hmm. But the MRI may not be enough or may not have changes early enough? Is that what's going well, on? Well, um, sometimes it does. Um, and we don't 
always have to go for a biopsy. Um, but this is an area where, again, um, because this therapy is so new, we just don't have um, all the data that's needed to really uh, answer that question quite yet. Right. Um, and that's something we're, we're working on. I can imagine without biopsies, you can't really know at the cellular level what's going on, I'm guessing, unless MRI's gotten really crazy sophisticated. So I would think if you had a new drug or a new kind of drug, like these immunotherapies, there's really got to be some advantage to getting some tissue to look at and say, gee, what's going on here so that we can understand how to treat it. Right. Um, you know, it, it kind of, again, is sort of a case-by-case -case basis. Um, sometimes it's very clear to us based on the lab values and, you know, the imaging. Sometimes the cardiac MRI shows very clearly a myocarditis picture, and uh, we may not need to go to that next step of the biopsy. But um, if it's not 100% clear and the clinical picture isn't 100% clear, which unfortunately sometimes it's not because... Um, Often these patients on these agents are are um, sick um, and have other symptoms that it's very difficult sometimes to tease out the cardiac symptoms from the other symptoms. In that case, we often do need uh, some more information by getting the tissue. Hmm. Now, it sounds really scary or even dangerous to biopsy the heart. Is it? Um, it does sound scary, um, but, you know, and I understand that. But actually, for us, it's a relatively, um, you know, straightforward and, and, and simple procedure um, where we go in with a catheter onto the right side of the heart and use tiny little forceps um, to just take a couple little, little bites of the heart tissue there um, to take a look at, um, you know, under the microscope with pathology. And um, it's actually a pretty safe procedure with a very low complication rate. Amazing. Um, you know, every procedure that you do has some risks. So of course, we don't do it when it's not completely indicated. But if it's indicated, um, the risks are pretty low. And we think that the benefits will, will outweigh those even low, low risks um, in order to get the information to help the patient. Uh -huh. And does your practice actually perform those tests? Or do you send them to people who are full-time catheter people? We don't perform them. We send yeah. them to specialists, uh, interventional, invasive. right, interventional cardiologists who do these type of invasive procedures all day, you know, in and out. Sure, so. makes sense. Yeah, and and I know that there's a kind of an old story of of um, a cancer-related heart problem where protein gets accumulated in the heart and people with myeloma and such that can uh, cause heart problems. Do you? I guess that's called amyloidosis. Right. And do you guys deal with that as well? And we do. Um, we do see patients um, with concern for for amyloid, um, either patients to help make that diagnosis or patients that already have that diagnosis to help manage that cardiac problem. Um, and the diagnosis of that is. Um, you know, a diagnosis that's made with a combination of uh, different lab tests and also with cardiac imaging. Um, and in that case, uh, we, you know, normally start with echocardiography, um, and then we utilize cardiac MRI as well to help look at that tissue closer to see if we can see um, actually evidence of those, those deposits within the heart muscle, which we're able to image. And then sometimes, depending upon the, the type of amyloid that it is, um, we also get uh, nuclear imaging studies as well to help uh, get more information. Wow, that sounds cool. <laughs> so using an antibody or something that's labeled with a 
Uh, is that how it works, or? Um, it it's a little bit different than that. It um it looks at what it does is it helps to get. It's a radio tracer. It helps to distinguish between the different types uh, different types of amyloid. Oh, I see. Yeah. I feel like in back in the old days, maybe some of those patients got biopsy, but uh, I, I may be remembering some wrong. of those patients do still get biopsy. Um, <laughs> but in that case, you know, if the imaging is clear, which often it is, because now um, you know we do have a fair amount of data um, as far as cardiac MRI and nuclear studies in diagnosing amyloid, um, and that those studies did compare those imaging to the gold standard of biopsy, as you mentioned, showing that it's, it's, it's very good. So once we have a truly positive imaging study, it's not always necessary to go for biopsy, but we actually have specialists within each of those subspecialties, um, not just cardiology, also you know GI, pulmonary, nephrology, um, the list goes on and on. And there's a, at least one specialist in each of those, and we all meet and work together about how to help manage these patients as a whole and um, to diagnose and, and manage these uh, potential side effects of these agents, which are truly helpful agents and really um, patients are responding well, um, but we do have to also address the, the effects of them. Dr. Lauren Baldessare is the director of the Smilo Cancer Hospital Cardio-Oncology Program. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.